0: Again, I appreciate so much the invitation to come and be with you again in this meeting and to be the speaker this week. And I realize that there are others that could have been invited. The fact the elders invited me encourages me more than you perhaps may realize. It's good to be with you again. And I look forward to the things we have planned. I'm excited about some of the lessons we're presenting, and I hope you'll share in that excitement by being here and bringing your friend or neighbor. Each time I'm before you, I'll remind you of the topics, even though you have them on your flyer. This evening, we'll be talking about things we do not know. We need to know what we don't know and the fact that we don't know them. We'll talk about what that is tonight. Tomorrow evening, we'll talk about 1 Kings chapter 13. We'll talk about the story of two prophets. I call that, alas, my brother, that phrase is found in 1 Kings chapter 13, but it's a story of two prophets. That's the lesson you want to bring your non-Christian friend or neighbor to. If you have someone you've been thinking what night would be a good night to bring my non-Christian friend or neighbor and I want them to come in here some basic things that'll help them, that's the one you want to bring them to. They'll benefit from all of them but that's the one you want them to come in here. On Tuesday, we'll talk about Ahab and Jezebel. That Ahab, Ahab sold himself to do evil because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And so we'll talk about selling and stirring. Could it be that you're selling yourself Or maybe you're being stirred, or maybe you're stirring someone up. Talk about all that on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we'll raise the question that David raised concerning his own son. Is the young man safe? Good question, isn't it? How do I know if he's safe? We'll talk about that on uh, Wednesday evening. On Thursday, we'll talk about things that encourage. Quite often, members of the body of Christ will say, I need encouragement. And that's true. And when they hear a lesson, maybe like some we're presenting this week, or maybe some that you hear on a regular basis, well, that's not what I need. I need encouragement when they may have just got some encouragement. So what is it the Bible labels as being encouraging? Things that encourage. And then on Friday, we'll close by looking at the earnest cry of Bartimaeus, a blind man who cried out to the Lord, having mercy on me. And what do we learn from him about getting out of our rut? We'll see what that is on Friday evening. Let's turn to our, in our Bibles to Luke chapter five, Luke chapter five. This was just read in a few, few moments before you, and we'll go back through that though. I'm not going to read it all at this juncture, but Luke chapter five, put your finger there or put a marker there because we're going to be appealing time and again, back to this text, Luke chapter five. This is the story of the call of the first disciples. The setting for this is at the Lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is located at the northern end opposite of the Salt Sea on the opposite end of the Jordan River. And so that is the Lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. A little closer look at that sea, you'll notice at the northern end there is the city called Capernaum. The land that was to the south of Capernaum on the western side was often referred to as Gennesaret, the sea itself as the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. So because of that, we think that perhaps the setting for what takes place in Luke chapter five was somewhere to the west and to the south of Capernaum. Along that shore is where Jesus then comes in contact with a multitude and he sets down and began to teach them. So now notice in verse three, a crowd presses around him and as the crowd begins to press around him, he enters into a boat and puts out a little from the land and sets down and begins to teach the people. The text says, verse three, verse two says that Peter and his fishing partners were washing their nets after an unsuccessful night. Now when they're washing their nets, that suggests they're done, they're finished, they're through. As you might see someone who, I'm not a fisherman, but I know enough to know that when you see the fisherman putting his boat back on the the trailer, he's pulling away, he's, he's secured all of his tackle, he's done for the day. He's finished. He's done. That's what they're doing. They're done and they're finished. Now notice at verse four, when Jesus finishes talking to the people and teaching the people, he tells Peter to launch out into the deep and let down his net for a catch, the text says. So go back and cast those nets you are washing, cast them back out again into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Verse five says that Peter does so even though, even though they'd had, they'd worked all night long. Notice at verse five, let's read again. He said, master, we've toiled all the night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. The result was absolutely amazing. They caught so many fish, a great number of fish, that their net began to break. They motioned for their partners to come in the other boat. They filled both boats and both boats began to sink. Absolutely amazing results. Notice that Peter reacts in deep humility, verses 8 and 9. He falls down at the feet of Jesus saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And then I want you to notice verses 9 or 10 and 11, the disciples forsake all and they follow him. Now that's a quick summary. We're going to go back through that. But Jesus is teaching from a boat. He then tells Peter to launch out into the deep. He does so. A great catch of fish. Peter reacts in deep humility and then he tells the disciples, I want you to come and follow me and forsake all. And they do so according to verse 11. Now I want you to pay attention to verses 4 and 5 of our text. At verse 4, I want you to read with me, and I want you to watch for a particular word. We have it underlined. Then when he stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've told all the night and caught nothing. Here's our word. Nevertheless, nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. Let's talk about that word, Nevertheless. That word is a word of contrast, the text is indicating. It's a word of contrast and it is translated but in the American Standard, English Standard Version. BDAG, a lexicographer, says it simply means in spite of. In other words, what that means is that here's some things that are true on the one side. And in spite of that being true, I'm going to act and go in a direction that seems to be contrary to that. What's true on the one side? What's true on the one side is we fished all night long. And in fishing all night long, we've caught absolutely nothing. And furthermore, we're washing our nets. We're done. We're finished. We're ready to go home. We're discouraged. Nevertheless, in spite of that, what's going to take place? In spite of that, we're going to launch out in the deep. We're going to cast our nets and we're going to do so at your word. Verse four. At your word, verse 4 and 5, we're going to let down the nets. So let's talk about nevertheless. Lessons in discipleship from Luke chapter 5. And if you don't already have your Bibles open there, I encourage you to get your Bible. Let's turn to Luke chapter 5. And let's work our way through some very practical lessons we learned from Luke 5, 1 through 11. Nevertheless, here's the first lesson we learned. I learned from Luke chapter 5 that we should obey even if it seems unreasonable. That we should obey even if it seems unreasonable. Now you think for a moment, for Peter and the other disciples, the other fishermen, Jesus' request seemed unreasonable, had to seem unreasonable. You see, they fished all night and they've caught nothing. And you're telling us to cast again? That's like walking up to that fisherman who's already got his boat on the, on the trailer and he's secured all of his tackle. And you tell him, I tell you what, I think if you were to cast one more time out there, I think you'll catch something. Yeah, right. No, that ain't going to work. It had to seem unreasonable to them. Furthermore, I want you to notice they're professional fishermen. This is how they made their living. And what does a carpenter know about fishing? Let down your nets for a catch, he said. But I want to suggest to you this was early in the process of calling his disciples. And yet Peter had seen enough to have strong faith, have enough faith that he recognized that when the Lord said, cast out your nets for a catch, I'm going to do that. And something is going to take place. Something is going to happen. What I want to suggest to you I learned from this, it is not our place to question and to doubt. I want you to understand that Jeremiah 10 verse 23 says, it is not in man that walketh to direct his own footsteps. It is not my place to question and to doubt God. It's not in my place to question and to doubt what God has had to say. Furthermore, Isaiah chapter 55, God says, my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than theirs, so are my ways and your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. God thinks different than we do. And you remember the statement found over in Proverbs chapter 16 in verse 25. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the ends there are for the ways of death you remember Paul's statement in Romans chapter 11 in verse 34? Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? To paraphrase, it simply saying, who's wise enough and smart enough to set in judgment on God and give God advice of what's best and what's right? God, that's unreasonable. It is not our place to question and to doubt. It is ours to believe and to do. You see, he is our creator and we are his creatures. He is our God and we're mere men. He is our Lord and we are his servants. We should obey even if it seems unreasonable. But let's take a moment and consider some Bible characters that were asked to do something that may seem unreasonable to us. Now let's take, for example, the case that we mentioned this morning in Bible class, a case of Abraham. He was asked to believe he would have a son in his own old age. Now we've already read that in Bible class, so we won't take the time to read again Romans chapter four, but you recall the story. He is an old man. His wife is old, well past the bearing years. And he's told you're going to have a son. Now, does that seem reasonable to accept that? Or what about the case in Genesis 22? God told Abraham to sacrifice your only son. How reasonable does that seem? You mean you expect me to kill my son? That seems unreasonable to us. Or what about Ezra chapter 10 where God told them through the prophet, you are to separate yourselves from your wives that you should never have married in the first place. By the way, verse 44 says, by whom they had children. In other words, these seem to be happy families. And God says, you need to break that up because you didn't have a right to them in the first place. Does that seem reasonable? They were asked to do that. Or what about 2 Kings 5 where Naaman was told, go dip seven times in the river of Jordan to be cleansed of your leprosy. Ask a doctor how that works in cleansing leprosy. I'm going to go watch in the river of Jordan and I think I'll be clean of my leprosy. That seems unreasonable to us, doesn't it? I want to suggest to you that God may ask us to do some things that may seem unreasonable to you. This may not seem unreasonable, but for some, you mean I've got to be immersed and go under some water in order to be saved. God's not going to save me unless I do that. How unreasonable is that? That you've got to be dunked water. What if I, I don't get all the way under? What if I, there's no water around? That seems unreasonable to them. And yet Jesus said, he that believeth in his baptized shall be saved. Here's one even harder for some members of the church. You mean to tell me that I can divorce only for one cause? See, Jesus only gave one cause, Matthew 19 in verse 9, Matthew 5, 32. The only two passages that mention any cause. And that's the cause of fornication. So you mean to tell me if we're not getting along and there's no fornication, we can't divorce, you mean we've got to stay together? That seems unreasonable. We're going to be so unhappy. Or it may be that you're not to forsake under distress. By the way, Hebrews chapter 10, you hear it quoted many times, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Have you thought about the historical context? The historical context was the church was being severely persecuted. The textual context matches that. It deals with persecution in chapter 10, chapter 12, as well as many other chapters. Those two are are very strong in indication of dealing with the matter of, of persecution. So either the text is not telling us why they were forsaking, it just overlooks that, or it's indicating by the context, historical and textual context, not forsaking the assembly of, of yourselves together as the manner of some is, there was something going on causing some to forsake the assembly and it must've been persecution. And in that context, he said, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves. That seems so unreasonable. Seems so unreasonable. For example, here's another case. withdraw from those who walk disorderly. You mean I'm to cut off my association with someone I love dearly that I've had great association with just merely because they're not walking in harmony with God? I'm not to keep company with them. I'm not to mix up together with them. You mean I'm not supposed to do that? You mean I'm supposed to forgive if they repent? You don't know what they've done against me. And yet, Jesus said, if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns, saying, I repent, you shall forgive. That seems so unreasonable to some. But here's something else. What does it mean, nevertheless, lessons in discipleship? It means you obey even if it seems unreasonable, and secondly, you try even if it seems impossible. You try even if it seems impossible. You see, Peter must have thought about failure. You say, how do you know? He'd fished all night and caught nothing. It had to be on his mind. It would be if I was out fishing and caught nothing. I failed. The very use of the word nevertheless suggests he was going to act contrary to how things look. You say, I fished all night, caught nothing. Nevertheless, I am going to cast out my net for for a catch. I'll do that. Only because you say so, but the way it looks is there's going to be failure. This time he acts solely on his faith in Jesus and not as a fisherman. He's going to try in spite of the failure of the night, he's going to try in spite of the possible failure of the future. By trying, he caught fish that would not have happened otherwise. Had he not tried, he would have failed as a fisherman and as a disciple. He would have walked the way that night with no fish and he would also not been a disciple of the Lord. And I'm learning from this, you try even if it seems impossible. We must try to do the things that we're afraid that we'll fail in. For example, for some it's living the Christian life. Maybe, Maybe that's not a thing you're afraid of and maybe you haven't run into that. I don't know if David and Leland have run into this, but I have many times in a home Bible study, you have a person almost to the point you think they're probably going to be baptized tonight. And then suddenly it comes to a stop. They don't want to go any further. Why? Well, they recognize, they say, they tell me at least, maybe this is just an excuse, that I recognize that I'll face temptation and I know I'll cave and I know I'll sin again. And I don't think I can live as faithful as I should. I don't think I'll hold out. I don't think I'll even try. And so they just quit. I'm afraid of failure. I don't think I can live the Christian life. Just don't believe I can do it. Or maybe there's one who is afraid to bring others to Christ. I'm afraid to reach out to my neighbor, my coworker, or a family member because it may not go well. And our relationship is going to go south now. And they won't listen anyway. Say I'm afraid to try because I'm afraid of failure. Maybe it's to correct and restrain children. That may be true at a young age, but I've seen this particularly when it gets to maybe teenage and college years, parents who are afraid to say no to the children. I'm afraid they'll go away. I'm afraid they'll rebel. I'm afraid I'll have problems if I sat down on them hard. I'm afraid to do that. I'm not going to tell them they can't. See, I'm afraid of failure. Or maybe it's a teaching effort. Sometimes churches are afraid. Listen, we won't have a radio program because it won't do any good. We won't mail out a bulletin because nobody will read it. We're afraid of failure. Or maybe we're afraid to take part in teaching a class or take part in service. I'm afraid I'll mess up. I won't try to make a talk. I won't lead singing. I won't do anything. I'm afraid I'll mess up. I'm afraid of failure, you see. Or maybe I'm afraid to forgive someone. If I turn loose of that sin and let it go, I'm afraid I'll need it back to hold against them. I've dealt with married couples who are having troubles and they're afraid to try to be the mate they should be. Well, why are you afraid to to be the husband you should be? Because I'm afraid she won't be the wife she should be. Why are you afraid of being the wife you ought to be? Because I'm afraid he won't reciprocate and be the husband he should be. I'm afraid of failure. It won't work. And so we don't try. And on we could go. I want to suggest to you that the one tolerant man in Matthew chapter 25 failed saying, I was afraid. Remember that? I was afraid. Why didn't you do anything with that? I was afraid, he said. Lessons in discipleship. What am I learning? I learned that you obey even if it seems unreasonable. I learned that you try even if it seems impossible. And here's the third lesson I learned. You continue on even if you're weary. You continue on even if you're tired and you're worn out and you're weary. Peter and the other disciples, the fishermen that he was with, were absolutely tired. How do you know? They toiled all the night. It didn't say they were just out on the lake all night. They had toiled all night. They've been working all night long. Things had not gone as they had hoped. They're disappointed and they're discouraged. Seems like all has been useless, at least for that night it was. Fished all night, came back with nothing. This is how they make their living, by the way. If ever they thought about quitting fishing and quitting the business, this would have been the night. It would be for me. I don't know about David and I don't know about Leland, but there've been times I've thought about quitting preaching and I want to tell you, it wasn't when things were going well. It's not when crowds are getting larger. It's not when people are responding. It's not when you're having a whole bunch of home Bible studies. It's not when people are wanting to have personal studies. It's not when people are responding to your teaching. It's not when you're being greatly encouraged by everybody. It's when at your lowest moment you think I'm throwing throw up my hands and quit. Believe I'll just quit. Do something else. If ever they thought about quitting, this is the moment. And yet Jesus says, keep on fishing. You fished all night, caught nothing. Launch out again into the deep and let down your nets for a catch, he said. And here's what I'm learning from that. It's easy to become weary. And it's easy to become discouraged. Quite often life doesn't go as it's planned. Paul Harvey once said, life's like a football. The thing ain't round. She'll bounce funny on you. It does that, doesn't it? Life does bounce funny on you. It doesn't go like you planned. I I thought we were going to go this direction and suddenly we made a turn in another direction. Doesn't always go like we thought. Sometimes we face unexpected difficulties. We try, and it seems like we, we get knocked down every time we try. I stand up and try again, and I get knocked back down. It may be that we're weary with ourselves and our lack of progress. I thought I'd be further along. It may even be physically something, or it may be spiritually. It may be we're weary with our families, the lack of cooperation, their lack of faithfulness, and I'm discouraged because of that. It may be that I'm weary with those I try to influence and I'm not seeing any fruit at all. It may be some family member, it may be a co-worker, it may be a fellow Christian. I'm trying to encourage and I'm not getting anywhere with them. I'm discouraged. There's opposition sometimes for our stand for truth, even from our own brethren. Some unforeseen circumstances arise and causes our whole life seem to turn south. And so I'm discouraged. And I want you to notice what the text says. The Bible tells us that the weary and the tired and the discouraged are to continue on. Let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. That's the whole point of Hebrews chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. Chapters 1 through 9 of the book of Hebrews sets the pace for making that point. That Jesus is the way, you're on the right course. And now then in chapters 10 to 13, don't give up, keep on keeping on. I know you're weary, I know you're tired, I know you're discouraged, but don't give up. Look with me at chapter 10, if you will. And in verse 23, chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. Look at verse 35. Let us not cast away our confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance. After you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Don't give up. Look at verse 39. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe. In other words, continue to believe to the saving of the soul. Don't give up launch back out into the deep. Look at chapter 12, same book, verse one. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily ensnare us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Don't give up. I love the picture of verse 12. Look at verse 12. Strengthen the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. What's that about? It's a picture of being discouraged. Your knees are getting feeble and your hands are hanging down. It's a weary, discouraged, and tired person who lift those knees and hands up and be encouraged and press on. Don't give up. That's the point of chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. Paul would say the same thing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 and then verse 58. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord same point made in Galatians chapter six, seven, and nine. We'll reap if we do not lose heart or faint not, the King James would say. Tired, the weary, the discouraged must continue on. Don't ever quit. Launch back out into the deep. Lessons in discipleship. What do you learn from nevertheless? Obey, even if it seems unreasonable, try, even if it seems impossible, continue on, even if you're weary. Here's another lesson I'm learning from this context, particularly when I get to verses eight and nine, and that is be humble, even if it's hard. Be humble, even if it's hard. I want to tell you that for Peter, that for Peter, humility may not have been real easy for him. Now, listen carefully to what I'm saying. I am not saying he wasn't humble. I'm just saying it may not have been real easy for him. See why do you say that? Would well, you remember the discussion of the disciples? They were arguing, the text says in Matthew 18, in parallel text, about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Their idea of the kingdom was a materialistic, earthly kingdom, and the idea that they're arguing about who's going to get the chief spots in the kingdom. Much like the discussion in the political circuit, if someone looks like they're going to win the presidency, reckon who he's going or she's going to put in, in the uh, secretary of state, the most coveted of positions, reckon who gets DOD, reckon who's going to get chief of staff, the one who really runs the country, (laughs) reckon who's going to get secretary of treasury, who's going to get these coveted spots. And so the idea is who's going to sit on the right hand of the Lord in his kingdom when he sets it all up. Reckon who that'll be. And they're arguing over that. Peter's name had to surface in that somewhere. You say, why? He was in that inner circle of Peter, James, and John. Those three names had to surface somewhere. Had to. Wouldn't you think? And if that's not to convince you that it may have been a little hard for him, I want to suggest to you, he was a man who had confidence in himself on a number of occasions. He was always the first to speak out. I always admire those who can hold back when a question is asked, they hold back for a little bit. I sometimes am like, Peter, I'm ready to answer. Let's go. I've got an answer for that. Peter was, he was ready to jump out and answer. He would speak up and answer first. He always seemed to be the first to jump out and answer. He had confidence not only in himself to answer, he had confidence to act. He was the one who drew the sword and cut off Malchus' ear. Quite confident, wasn't he? In his speech and in his action. And he was the one that claimed, I will never stumble. Others will stumble, but not me, Lord. I won't do that. Well, yeah, you'll you'll deny me even this very night. No, I won't. I'll go to prison with you or die for you is what I'll do. But I will never deny you. Well, I'm trying to paint as a picture It may not have been real easy for Peter, but I want to tell you that Peter humbly bowed before Jesus. Let's look at verses 89 of our text in Luke chapter 5. Verses 89 said, he fell down at Jesus' knee, saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Now, what was the reason for that? Verse 9 explains, for he and all who were with him were astonished. They were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken in. You would be too. Now the reaction was he became conscious of his own unworthiness in the presence of Jesus. Notice the phrase in verse nine, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. O Lord. It is not a statement. Lord, I don't want to be around you. I want you away from me. I don't want to be around you. But he's saying, I am unworthy to be in your presence. It's a focus on his own unworthiness, not something about Jesus. But Jesus, you are so worthy, but I am so unworthy to be in your presence. Depart from me because I am a sinful man, O Lord. I want to tell you, Peter had seen other miracles. Evidence, just glance back at chapter 5 if you have your Bible open. For example, Peter's mother-in-law had been healed. It's just one of several. He had seen miracles before, but this seemed to be a turning point. This seemed to be a turning point point. and notice in verses 10 and 11, particularly verse 10, Jesus sought to calm those fears and turn that fear and anxiety into love and to respect. And he said to him, do not be afraid from now on you will catch men. Now I want to tell you that God calls us to be humble as well. Now let's establish the fact that we're to be humble. Matthew chapter 18, you know the story in that context of the disciples arguing over who's the greatest. Jesus said, except you be converted and become as little children, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? If you don't change this attitude about who's the greatest, you won't even be in the kingdom, much less have great places in it. You got to change. Become humble as a little child. He said, first Peter five, God resists the proud and gives grace to them. But God calls us to be humble as well. But I want to tell you at times it's hard. And you say, no, I don't think it's hard. Well, It is if you are like those in Luke 18 who think sometimes you're better than others. Are you ever like the the publican who said, God, I think I'm not as other men are, even as this publican. Maybe you look at a fellow Christian that you think is not what they should be. And I think I'm thankful I'm not as they are. I think I'm better than they are. It's hard to be humble if you think you're really better than someone else. It's hard to be humble when you think you're valuable. That seemed to be the argument in Matthew 18. Who's going to be at the right hand who will really bring value to the kingdom? Maybe, maybe I'll be selected because, you see, I think I bring more value than someone else. I'm valuable to this church, you see. I, I, I think I can bring more than other people. If I really think that, it's hard to be humble. It's hard to be humble when we think we're stronger. Galatians chapter 6 He that thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he's deceived himself. What's he talking about? It's a context of how he thinks about himself spiritually. He really thinks he's something spiritual when maybe he's not what he really ought to be. And so when I really think I'm stronger than others, it's hard to be humble. It may be when I think I know more than others who I think I have knowledge that others don't have. And that was in the context Of eating of meat sacrificed to idols. See, you don't have that knowledge because it bothers you, but it doesn't bother me. I've got greater knowledge. That means then I may think of myself superior. It's hard to be humble under those circumstances. Lessons in discipleship. What does it mean? Obey, even if it seems unreasonable. Try, even if it seems impossible. Continue on, even if you're weary. Be humble even if it's hard. Here's something else I want us to consider. Forsake all, even if what you're forsaking is important. Forsake all, even if what you're forsaking is important. I want to tell you that Jesus called upon these men to be his disciples, which demanded that they forsake. And in so doing, look at verse 11 of Luke chapter five. Turn back if you've left. So when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. They left their business and their boats. I want to tell you that wasn't much, but it was all they had. It was all they had. And I want to tell you that was when they'd had the best day they had ever had fishing. Now, remember a moment ago, I said, if you ever thought about, if they ever thought about quitting fishing, it was when they'd had a bad night, but not after a night like this. When they caught so much fish, the net began to break and they sink two boats. Yeah, i thought about quitting preaching, throwing up my hands and quitting, but it's not when I have people standing in line to be baptized. That's not the day to do that. No, no, things are going too well right now. Not when the church is growing Not when people are saying, we want to study more, we want to learn. That's not when you do that. They left their boats and their business after the best day of fishing they ever had. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Or let's turn to Mark 1. Mark 1 adds a point that uh, Matthew 4 doesn't mention. Turn to Mark 1 with me. They left their family. It wasn't just a matter of a boat and a business But they left their family. Look at Mark 1 and in verse 20. The text says that immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and went after him. They left their father behind and the servants behind. They left family. Go back to Luke chapter 5 and verse 11. The text says they left all. They forsook all. Why is that? Because the one they're following and what they're going to become and what they will be doing far exceeds anything they're leaving behind. Far exceeds the relationship with their father, the success of the business, the value of their boats or whatever else it may be they left. Go back to verse 11. So when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all. Mark's account said they immediately left all and followed him they forsaking, and their leaving was immediate, not days later. It wasn't a matter. Well, you know, it looks like maybe this is going to be a better deal to go with Jesus than it is to keep. But, but we've got some things to wrap up here with this business, and we need to talk to our father. We need to try to sell the boats, and if we can get those sold in time, and see somebody wants to buy the business, and da-da-da-da-da. And so we keep. No, no, no. They immediately left him. They forsook everything because of the value of what they were becoming. I want to tell you. That discipleship demands that we forsake all. The Lord must always come first. You know these passages well. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or what about 1 Peter three fifteen? We often talk about God sanctifying us. But here's a passage that says we ought to sanctify the Lord. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does that mean? You set him apart in your life. First and foremost. Most important in your life. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Put the Lord first. Here's a case in point of the, the rich young ruler who wanted to serve the Lord. He'd come running to Jesus, Mark's account says. He's eager to learn. He's eager to enter into heaven. What good thing should I do that I might inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, keep the command. Well, I've done all of that. Is there anything else? He said, yeah, You sell all that you have and give to the poor. And yet he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He didn't put the Lord first in his life, did he? And what I'm here to tell you is it may cost you to be a disciple. It may cost you more than a boat in a business. It may cost you money. It may cost you a lot of money to be a disciple. Well, I'm not talking about giving on the first day of the week. I'm talking about you may give up some things. I have baptized people before who had to give up a job where they were making good money because it interfered with their service to the Lord. So now I want to be a disciple. You may just have to give that boat up and leave it. And leave it with the hired servants and with your father. It may cost you money. It may cost you your job. Because if you're standing for the truth and your service to the Lord, you may just have to walk away from a job. It may cost you your friends who turn their back on you, it may cost you relationships, it may cost you your family. We've all known someone who obeyed the gospel and because they obeyed the gospel, their family turned against them and wouldn't speak to them again. Mom and dad have nothing to do with them. Their siblings have nothing to do. It may cost you your family. It may cost you time. He said, I, I didn't think being a disciple was going to cause me to spend this much time. And it may cost you time. You may lose your boat. You may lose your business. You may lose your father in order to be a disciple of the Lord. Luke chapter nine, verse 62 says that if we're not willing to forsake all, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back, remember that statement? is not fit for the kingdom. You say, I want to be a disciple of the Lord. I think I want to follow him. But you look back, well, I'm leaving a boat and it is of some value. And it is a good business. In fact, we did a pretty good job the other night. You look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. No indication they ever looked back at what they left. The value of that. Lessons in discipleship. Nevertheless. What a powerful word. What do we learn from nevertheless in Luke chapter 5? I'm learning you obey even if it seems unreasonable. You try even if it seems impossible. You continue on even if you're weary. Be humble even if it's hard. And forsake all even if it's important. Nevertheless, there may be one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?